Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you are a guest this evening, we again welcome you. If you would, be open your Bibles to the book of Job. We won't have slides this evening. If you need to read along in a pew Bible, you can begin on page 451. will be the beginning. Uh, we'll begin in the first chapter and look at a few things through a few of the chapters leading to where Job cries out for his Redeemer. It's been a wonderful week this past week in the life of this congregation, and we're thankful uh, for all the opportunities that God gives. I want to share one uh, event that took place that probably very few of you know about that was most interesting. Last Sunday, right after our morning worship services, the, uh, some of the individuals from the Curd Road congregation called, and they were having problems with their baptistry, and they had four individuals that wanted to be baptized into Christ. And so they came down Sunday between the services and uh, those four individuals were baptized into Christ. And the Curd Road congregation is doing really well. They have been growing recently and uh, they have now very oftentimes attendance of over 40 on Sunday mornings. And uh, so let's continue uh, to encourage them in every way we can and pray for them. It is wonderful to see the Lord's kingdom doing well in Mount Juliet and let's make sure that we encourage and be a part of all the good that we can be a part of whether it's here or any of of the Lord's congregation scattered around you know I was blessed in first second third and fourth grade to have teachers that I just clicked with them and maybe I should say they clicked with me we kind of understood and, and maybe I could even stretch and say we even appreciated each other. I know I appreciated them and, and they acted like they appreciated me. But you know how some year you finally have that teacher that you don't click with? Fifth grade was that year. She and I never really understood each other. I spent a lot of time sitting right beside her desk. She'd pull my desk beside her desk. If you'll remember back to those days, that wasn't a compliment when that happened. It wasn't that she wanted me nearby. I can't tell you the number of times I heard that year, David, you would ruin the patience of Job over and over. I didn't know exactly what that meant in fifth grade, but I started to figure out that that too was not a compliment. Isn't it interesting that even James talks about the patience of Job in James the fifth chapter and verse 11. Now, sometimes we use that expression of speech as if we're talking about Job was a man who didn't complain and, and he was just uh, almost like a passive sense, just walking through a very difficult time in life with no complaints, etc. That's not the way that's used, not even the way Job uses it. When the Scripture speaks of the patience of Job, it's talking about enduring through a very difficult time. Many of us have been reading through the book of Job and it's obvious that as Job goes through the experiences that he did go through, he did complain from time to time. He did have a lot of questions. He did have worlds of discomfort. But you see, when the scripture speaks of the patience of Job, it's talking about that endurance that Job had. I'm not suggesting to you tonight that Job did everything perfectly, but all of us would have to say hats off and hold him in high regard for the fact that he just did not give up. He stayed in there. I'd like for us to just kind of highlight some of the things in the book of Job, maybe as a way to encourage some of us that maybe haven't been a part of the daily Bible reading. Maybe you want to jump in and, and get a hold of Job this week and finish up a tremendous reading. Those of us that have been reading through, it'll be things that his... We've read them. It's, it's been on our mind and things that hopefully would help us all because it's not 
will you grieve? It's when you grieve. We all are going to have not just a time, but probably all of us here will have times in our life that we will go through deep and painful grief, we'll go through struggles that seem like mountains that seem almost impossible to scale, and we need to be reminded that one of the oldest writings that we have in the Scripture, a book written, the time period that some guess that it might have been around Abraham's time of his life, and we, we see the difficult topic of pain and suffering. We don't have all the questions answered that we could possibly ask, but what we see running through this book is trust God. Friends, I've got to get that message. That's what God is saying to us in the book of Job. I can't answer everything God tells us in a sense by the fact that it's not there. He's saying, I'm not going to answer everything that you might ask, but I'll answer this. Trust God. The very first verse, Job the first chapter, those man in the land of Uz, that would be between uh, close to Saudi Arabia border today. Uh, it'd be north and east of Palestine. There was a man, this isn't fictional, he truly lived. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man, now notice these four descriptions. That man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. Job, tell us, what kind of relationship did you have with fellow man? Blameless. People didn't go around blaming him for living an unrighteous life. What was the standard in his life? Uprightness. In other words, he intended on living a life of doing the right thing. He was a righteous man by a standard. What about your relationship with God? He feared God. What about your relationship with Satan? I try to run away from him. I flee away from the things that are wrong. Please note this. If you and I say, whenever my difficult days come, I want to be like Job and I want to persevere, we have to begin by having a tremendous amount of faith if we're going to end faithful through the trials. Friends, it just doesn't work that I say, you know, I'm just going to have a faith that's kind of on the fringes. It's a real weak faith. And then I'm going to go through a really tough time and I'm going to use that tough time to build my faith. I'm not saying that's never happened, but that's usually not the rule of thumb. Strong and faithful individuals then have a faith in God to carry them through that difficult time. As you look over the next several verses, you see that he had ten children in verse 2. You see great, great possessions, so much so that at the end of 3, it says that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. When we skip down in verse 5, we see that he is offering burnt sacrifice for his children. That kind of makes us believe that this was probably back in the days of the patriarchs instead of the dime that would have been under the law of Moses. Here's a man that's very wealthy. Here's a man, no doubt, would have been known in his area. Here was a man who was very righteous in his relationship with God and shunned evil. Here was a man that loved his children and served them in their religion. And then God and Satan began to discuss. And God allowed Satan to touch him. Satan ended up taking the lives of his children and all of his possessions. And then at the end, in 1 and 22, in all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. 
What a tremendous trust in God. How many of us could have the burial of 10 children and the loss of all of our possessions and not begin to blame God? We see a great character here, great integrity in his faith. And then in the second chapter, we see that God allowed Satan to touch the man. And so we see that boils were placed on his body in verse 7 and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Now we can try to imagine what that would feel like also because of some things we're going to study tonight. You need to try to imagine what that might look like. What does a person look like when you see them with boils all over their body? His wife in verse 9 Do you still, this is what she says to Job, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But then at the end of verse 10, notice what he says, what he said about him. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now keep in mind before you get too hard in criticizing his wife, she too has lost 10 children. She too has lost all of her possessions and she has watched her husband become very, very sick. You know, some of us would probably believe that it would be easier to be the one sick than to watch our spouse be the one that was sick. Now, if you believe that, you can understand that in some senses now, she may be going through even more than what Job is going through. I'm not trying to justify her lack of faith, just trying to clarify before we're quick to criticize. But nevertheless, she brings out something that's interesting. She challenges him to question, why would you still be a person of integrity? You notice that oftentimes in preaching and teaching, I use the word integrity as it deals with faith. And one reason why I use that word as often as I do is since I've studied Job, that is a word that I have grown to appreciate in describing our faith. Here is a woman that's gone through so much and she's literally, indirectly, she's saying, my faith is shattered. And she looks over at her husband who's gone through the things she's gone through, it's very similar, and she says... You are a man of integrity? You are whole? No, his possessions aren't whole. His family's not whole. His health is not whole. What is she talking about? She has to be talking about his faith. You are going to be a man of integrity right now? You're going to have a faith of integrity right now? Your faith is going to be whole? She was startled, perhaps, amazed. What would you be? But even more important than that question, what do you set your heart on being right now? Instead of saying to yourself right now, I don't know if I could ever do that, how about if we look deep within ourselves and we make a commitment to God that says, I don't know exactly how, but my commitment is I want to have a faith that remains whole no matter what. Remember this morning's lesson? 1 Corinthians 10th chapter, verse 13, the Lord's not going to put up on us more than what we can stand. He's going to give us that way of escape. And so with that belief and that promise, you and I ought to be able to say whatever comes in our life, we will be whole. 
It's not a boasting. It's a commitment. It's a desire. It is the plan so that when that time comes, it's not the first time that we have given thought to it. Now the friends arrive in the second chapter in verse 11. You see the three friends that come along and Bildad and Eliphaz and so forth. And they sit down and, and they begin to mourn with him. But you need to notice in 12, before they actually get this, this helps us paint a picture of Job. Before they actually arrive, look at 12. In this second chapter in verse 12, and when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept and each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. That would have been normal reactions for great grief. And so why do you think they didn't recognize him? What would you look like if you'd experienced all the losses that Job experienced and the addition of the physical ailment of the balls all over the body? Can you imagine what their eyes were beholding? They didn't recognize their friend. And when they did recognize him, the, the reaction was immediate. It, it was a strong reaction of grief. And so in 13... This is one of the best things we can say about these guys. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was great. What a comfort. For seven days and nights, they just said, we'll sit with you. Many times we give and offer our greatest comfort when we go, we have to go. When we go to the people, and we simply offer our support and presence. Many times, just as these individuals did, we begin to weaken that support of grief whenever we start talking. Please note this. Be careful what you say to someone who's grieving because in most instances, you can't make it better. So if your idea is, I'm going to figure out something to say during this time of grief that's going to make them feel better, you can't take away the fact that that loss is real. You can't take away the pain that they feel. But what we can do, instead of trying to say something that makes it better, we can communicate, I love you, I'm here for you, I want to support you in any way that I can. Those kind of things that help communicate that we are available most people say is a much greater support than us trying to figure out how to communicate something that actually is impossible. A very important lesson to learn. Up to this point in this reading, before we read from the 11th verse, we've seen a conflict with heaven and hell. Now from this time forward up to the 37th chapter, we're going to see a conflict between Job and his friends. And then when we come to the 38th chapter, the silence of heaven is broken and God speaks and we see a conflict between God and Job that finally brings an amount of resolution at the end. So as we think about these various conflicts, we have scanned over some of the things at the beginning. Now, if you will, go with me to Job, the 19th chapter. In Job, the 19th chapter, we see a little bit of insight into the conflict between him and his friends. What we have here is a couple of cycles of speeches where each friend will speak up and offer a speech and then Job will give his rebuttal. Now, please note the fact that oftentimes what their speech is simply indicting Paul to say, you have done wrong. You have some kind of tremendous sin in your life. That's the only reason that a great hardship like this would come into life. You need to repent of it. You need to make it known. You need to start living a righteous life. And of course, you can imagine how Job is feeling because none of those things are true. 
And so as we read in the 19th chapter, beginning verse 1, then Job answered and he said, he's answering Bildad here out of the 18th chapter. And, and like if you look in the 18th chapter, verse 5, he's accused him the light of the wicked indeed goes out and the flame of the fire does not shine. You see what Bildad's saying? Hey, you got to expect this, Job. You're going to live a wicked life? Your light's going to go out. What's happening to you, Job? Your light's going out. Why? Because you lived a wicked life. You see, it's that kind of talk that's going on and on and on. And so we come to the 19th chapter in verse 1. Job answered and said, How long will you torment my soul and break me in pieces with words? Do words really hurt? Ask Job. Job says, You're breaking me in pieces with your words. Then ten times you have reproached me. Probably he's not counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. He's probably, keep in mind, this is the first book of poetry that we'll be reading of the five books of poetry of the Hebrew writing here. And so this is poetry for saying it's a complete number. In other words, your reproach towards me is complete. You just do it over and over and over. And then he says, you are not ashamed that you have wronged me. And if indeed I've erred, my error remains with me. Now, if you hold your finger here in the 13th chapter, go back, I mean, hold your finger here and go back to the 13th chapter in verse 23. Notice what Job says at this point to his friends, the 13th chapter in 23. Job responds to him, and he says at the end of 22, uh, 22 he says, then call and I will answer. Oh, let me speak. Then you respond to me. How many are my iniquities and sins? Make me know my transgressions and my sins. You see what Job is doing periodically? He's saying, listen, if you know that I am such a big, bad sinner, just tell me one of them. Or if you need to count them out, just count them out and list them for me. I'm tired of you accusing me of being such a wicked person, but yet you're not telling me what this great wickedness that I've done. He mentions that there, as we've seen in the 13th chapter. He's bringing it up again here. Why do you shame me? Why do you continually accuse me of doing wrong? And then in the sixth verse, he says this, Know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with his net. You see what Job is going to do here is he's going to begin to blame God for this occasion. And for the next several verses, he talks about that. But then in the 13th verse and following, and I want us to especially read through this because I think it helps us to get the setting of maybe what Job was really going through. And so what he does is he's blaming God for the broken relationships that he's experienced in in his life. I want to ask you something. Right now, if you had to live and try to imagine, I don't know if if you and I are even capable of imagining this. But what if right now you had to live from this snap of the finger forward where nobody on earth wanted a relationship with you? Nobody. You think of your closest friend and they are estranged from you. You think about your spouse, your children, your grandchildren. You think about coworkers, neighbors, no one would have a relationship with you. Now let me ask you this. When you and I think about the trials of Job, and we talk about, wow, he lost everything. We talk about his health. Wouldn't you say that probably one of the very worst things that he experienced, we generally do not speak of that often. But that's why I want us to see this passage here. This is where we have insight to probably one of the most difficult aspects 
of the trial that Job went through. He's going to mention about 11 or 12 different either individuals or groups of people that during this time, now here he's blaming God for these people having nothing to do with him. Try to imagine how this would be for Job. Let's look at the 13th verse of the 19th chapter of Job. He has removed my brothers far from me. He's probably here speaking about his flesh and blood brothers. So, so his siblings that he grew up with, they are far from him. You know, we'd like to think if we were in that serious condition of health and if we had that many losses in our life, we'd like to think that our siblings would be running to us. No, not for Job, not in this time. And the rest of 13, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. Think about everybody that you deal with on a daily basis that you're not really close friends, but they're in your life. And then from this moment forward, they see you coming and they literally go the other way. If they know you're going to be somewhere, they don't show up. What would that be like? Let's read on. 14, my relatives have failed. Anybody that was related to him has nothing to do with him now. My close friends have forgotten me. Those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. I call my servant, but he gives no answer. I beg him with my mouth. You see this picture? Not only is he losing this relationship, but he has lost authority. He's lost power. The maidservants, back when he had health, Back when he had his possessions, when he had his family, he probably just had to give some kind of signal. All he had to do was signal and the maid servants would come running. He had his personal servant. That servant would wait on him on everything that he needed. And now he motions, he calls, he even begs. But yet the maid servants or the servant does not even respond to him. And then in 17, my breath is offensive to my wife. Now, it could be because of the sickness that literally his breath is that offensive or more than likely it could be the words that his breath says where he would call out for his wife and his wife, as we've seen in the earlier part of the book, she's fed up with it. She is being crushed by the losses that she's experienced. She wants nothing to do with him. And then we read on uh, at the rest of 17, and I am repulsive to the children of my own body So children that are his relatives are also turned away from him. 18, even young children despise me and I arise and they speak against me. You remember as a child having maybe an older person in your life that you were afraid of them? Maybe because of some things in their house, maybe because of the way they said or did things. Can you imagine how the children would be afraid of Job? Can you imagine how he looked and how they were afraid of him? And then he says in 19, all my close friends abhor me and those whom I love have turned against me. 21, have pity on me, have pity on me, oh you my friends. So now he's talking to these last three. Can you have pity on me? For the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does. And so now finally he even says, just as everybody else has turned their back on me, here he's saying even God has turned his back. But yet then 
Could it be a flash where he says, no, I don't believe it. There's something difficult about this passage that I don't claim to you that I can explain it all, but he mentions something that is prophetic. He mentions something that many scholars say that it had to be the Holy Spirit working through him just as the Holy Spirit would work through a prophet. Because when we come down to 25, notice what he says now. It's like the glimmer of hope has returned. And in 25 he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. A powerful statement from one that was in the depths of doom and despair. And then finally, he finds some measure of faith. He finds some kind of way to offer a prophetic statement that says, I know, not I think, I might suggest, I hope, I know not a redeemer, I know that my redeemer. This is the man that has had so many losses, but he said, I know there's still a redeemer that believes in me. I know my, it doesn't matter what you're going through, you've got a redeemer. It doesn't matter what your past sin has been, you have a redeemer. It doesn't matter if everybody on earth has given up on you. You have a Redeemer that has not given up on you. Job was isolated as probably any man that has ever been on this face of this earth. And in the midst of this isolation, it's almost like a snap back to reality of faith that he says, no, 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 I'm not all alone. I know my Redeemer. Hebrew word for goel. You remember? When Boaz gave the nearest kinsman, the Redeemer, the opportunity to serve as the Redeemer for Naomi and Ruth. And you can tell the way that story is set up, he kind of hoped that that one would pass and that nearest kinsman passed. In other words, he's saying, I don't want to be their Goel. I don't want to be their Redeemer. And Boaz jumped in there and he said, all right, the deal is done. Then I'll serve as the Redeemer. The Redeemer was the one that went in And it was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a life for life. And the Redeemer was the one to go in to stand up for the nearest kin to say, I'll make sure that the punishment is executed. The Redeemer was the one that comes in for the nearest kin and says, if there has to be something that's financially bought back, something that's redeemed, I'll make the restoration. I'll put out the financial investment. Do you see the power of this word as it comes out of the... Uh, the Old Testament out of the Hebrew and as we go into the New Testament for the Lord to be our Redeemer, the one that says, I'll stand up for you. I'll be your nearest kin. I'll buy you back when nobody else will buy you back. He says, I know I'm going to see this. As you, you look there in 26, he says, that in my flesh, I shall see God. Another difficult phrase. What does he mean by that? Is he saying that, that I know with my own eye as I'm in this fleshly body, I'll see God? Or maybe he's saying while I'm in this flesh, I know this statement. I know by faith I'm going to see God. I know that in my spirit one day I'll stand before God. We don't know exactly how he's saying it. We can come up with about as many questions on this and more than we can have answers. But friends, tonight on this, I want us to concentrate on two main things here. One, he knew his Redeemer lived, and two, he knew he was going to see God at a time where it sounded like just before that he was ready to throw in the towel. 
tonight, friend. I beg us, listen to the trust. Listen to the faith. Cling to the hope that in the deepest hour when we don't know how it's going to work out, that same Redeemer is alive for us. We too can cast our eyes on that Redeemer. And I'd like to close with my favorite verse in the book of Job. Job, the 42nd chapter. Job, the 42nd chapter. In 38 and following, God starts questioning Job. And Job can't answer any of the questions. Job doesn't know how the foundation of the earth was laid. He didn't know who pulled the plumb line for the earth. He didn't know what the foundation was actually laid upon. You see, every question God asked, Job had to kind of shrug his shoulders and say, God, the more questions you ask, the more I realize how great and awesome you are and how weak and feeble I am. And so finally that leads Job in the 42nd chapter. Let's read till we get down to the third verse, Job the 42nd chapter, verse 1, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Have you ever been guilty of that? Have you ever been guilty of taking the counsel of God and hiding it and trying to speak things that you don't really know anything about and forgetting God who knows everything? And listen to the rest of this. Here it is. Job says, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Job, how much despair are you in now? He says, I'm not in as much despair right now. Why? Because now I see a little more clearly how awesome God is. And I see that I have been talking about things that I didn't understand and that actually what has happened is there have been some things happening that's too wonderful for me to understand in this flesh and blood. Please get this point and we close. There will be losses and challenges and difficult relationships in our life that if we go through those faithful, I believe with all of my heart, we will be able to step over into eternity. And if God chooses to show us how all of that worked out, we will be able to say, I did not understand at that time how wonderful things were going to come out of this. Wow. Look how God was in control the whole time. We're not going to see all that now. But we have to trust. Trust God. Where do we begin this evening? Let's be people of faith like Job 1 and 1. And let's know that the trials are coming. And whether it's before the trials, during the trials, or after the trials, know this. Our Redeemer lives. And He understands things that's too wonderful for me to even get my hands wrapped around on this earth. Tonight, where are you spiritually? Are you faithful? Let's be faithful so that we're ready for the rest of life. God, He can have wonderful things in store for us, but we need to be faithful. We need to be available to His blessings to receive them. If you've never been baptized into Christ, why not tonight? If you have been baptized into Christ, but yet something has 
pulled you away from where you ought to be, won't you tonight believe that your Redeemer lives and get back into a right relationship with Him and trust Him? When you don't see how it's all going to work out, trust Him and do the right thing. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand as we sing. Okay.